The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 1. We come again to the study of God's Word in the book of Romans. I must confess, I have no confidence that we will be getting out of Romans 1 soon. I have been uh, so overwhelmed by the, the text that we're looking at. Just studying over the last few weeks, it, it almost is like um, going to a smorgasbord where every single dish is, is as good or better than the one before. And every phrase of this passage just screams of the glory of God and invites us to understand Christ and the gospel in a deeper and more meaningful dimension. We've worked our way down to verse 18 and following. Very serious and somber moment in the apostles' explanation of the theology associated with the gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. After verses 16 and 17, announcing very clearly that he's not ashamed of the gospel, he begins in verse 18 to lay the case for every man's need for the gospel. And so, it begins with the word for in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His Invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Let's start today by asking and answering a couple of simple questions, okay? Do atheists believe in God? Now, the least we can say is that they say they believe in God, they disbelieve in God. The atheist wants us to believe that he disbelieves in God. Simple enough. They say that they disbelieve in God. But let's ask another more penetrating question, and it's this. Does God believe in atheists? We could say that God has a special relationship with the word atheism and atheist. Ah is the Greek alpha privative. It negates what's following. Theism is the Greek word for theos, which is God. Ah, theism, no God. God is an ah atheist. He is a no atheist. God doesn't believe in atheists. You know why? Atheists don't 
exist. This passage before us lays the foundation and gives no man the excuse that he disbelieves in God, therefore he's not accountable to God. This text before us this morning gives us the answer to both of these questions. God does not believe in atheists, as I said, because they don't exist. Or, if there's someone who says they are atheistic, they came to that conclusion after denying the God that they believe in, the God whose word, whose law is written on their heart and buried in their conscience. They've come to that conclusion after denying the revelation of the existence of God in their hearts and in the creation. Now, atheists are loud folks, are they not? All you need to do is turn on the pundits on any of the talk show hosts, and sooner or later, with a given any catastrophe in the world with giving any perspective, any political pers- uh, opinion in the world, an atheist is going to show up and they are loud folks. They have an edge to them as well. It's not enough for an atheist to disbelieve in God. He wants those who believe in God to be utterly humiliated. Atheists have a form of evangelism. They want us to disbelieve sometimes more than believers want them to believe. Madeline Murray O'Hare, a famous atheist of a generation ago, said, There is no God. Quite a statement. There's no heaven. That's quite a statement. There's no hell, she says. There are no angels, and when you die, you go into the ground and the worms eat you, she said. Heaven is a delusional dream of the unsophisticated minds of the ill-educated clergy. Well, I fall into that category, Miss Madeline. The ill-educated clergy try to delude their hearers, you susceptible, unintellectual, unintelligent followers, unintelligent followers of the clergy, Madeline Murray O'Hare would like you to believe that the reason that you are so deluded is that the man or men who stand in this pulpit are out to delude you. In our generation, Christopher Hitchens, who I've followed for the last few years, who is who knows better now, having died in 2011, said this, A person can be an atheist and wish that belief in God were correct, but that is... An atheist, that is an, but that atheist is a term that I'm trying to get into circulation. I am an anti-theist. That's someone relieved that there's no evidence for God. He goes on to say, The person who is certain and who claims divine warranty for his certainty about God belongs now to the infancy of our species. Hitchens says in his book, The Portable Atheist, The only position that leaves me with no cognitive dissonance is atheism. It's not a creed. Death is certain, replacing both the siren song of paradise and the dread of hell. Life on this earth, with all its mystery and beauty and pain, is then to be lived far more intensely. We stumble and get up. We're sad, confident, insecure, feel loneliness and joy and love. There is nothing more. Then he says this, and I want nothing more. Richard Dawkins, another vocal atheist, said this, if you're an atheist, you know 
you believe this is the only life you're going to get. It's a precious life. It's a beautiful life. It's something we should live to the full, to the end of our days. Where if you're religious and you believe in another life somehow, that means you don't live this life to the fullest because you think you're going to get another one. That's an awfully negative way to live a life. Being an atheist frees you up to live this life properly, happily, and fully, he says in quote. Ernest Hemingway said, thinking men are atheists. DeLoss McCallan said this, the invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. Thinking that it disproved God. The invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. Well, if we were to take that logic to its ultimate extreme, there, there should be no cell phones. Anyone seen a cell phone signal? There should be no wind. Anyone seen the wind? There should be no magnetism. It's invisible. No heat. No cold. Just because something is invisible doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Paul has begun the body of this great epistle of Romans. He's talked about his gospel. He's talked about the gospel, the good news of God. Verse 1 is actually concerning his son, verse 3. God's good news is Jesus Christ. Why is God's good news Jesus Christ? If you're reading the first 17 verses, you'll say, that's great, but, but why? Why is the gospel so important? Why is Jesus so important? Why is salvation something I should pursue? Can I just make it on my own? Well, he begins in verse 18 and following. And really for the next 16 chapters, he, he writes, he pens, he unpacks a description of our need for the Savior, our need for salvation, our understanding of the gospel in such a penetrating, in such a pivotal way. There is no way to escape the truth that we're in trouble with God. And only Jesus Christ and the gospel rescues us from a very angry God. Why is God angry? Well, we find out in the text before us. The place Paul begins is with man's condemnation, his deserving of God's rightful, furious, eternal, holy wrath. Jonathan Edwards penned a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that in his day stirred people to consider salvation and in our day stirs people in the 10th grade in English class to laugh at him. The question is not, what do you think about sinners who are in the hands of an angry God? The question is, is he angry? And are we really in his hands? Paul says that's the truth. God is angry. He is a wrathful God. His disposition toward anger is a reflection of his holiness. How can God who is pure and sinless have anything but the utmost hatred and disdain for sin? How can God who can dwell in no evil have sinners in his presence unless they, they capture, they receive some kind of alien righteousness that's 
outside of themselves, given to them, as, as the accounting term puts it, imputed into our account, put on our spiritual Excel sheet. So he begins to talk about that in verse 18. And as he unpacks the reasons for God's rightful anger, he looks at the, at the why and ultimately the, the how of atheism. Oh, there are people who say they're atheists. They're not new. Atheism wasn't invented with Madeline Murray O'Hare. There were people in Paul's day who were atheists. People who said that there was no God. People who actually said there might be a God, but we'll just kind of put an idol there to the unknown God because we don't know anything about him as we see in Acts chapter 17. Paul here dissects unbelief. He dissects disbelief. He gives us an anatomy of atheism. We're going to look at that this week and next. We're only going to be able to cover one point this week because there's so much here that directs, that uh, draws our attention. Let's look together at the atheist's two strategies for disbelief. The atheist's two strategies for disbelief. Now, notice it's a strategy. An atheist disbelieves on purpose. He has to change his constitution, which is given, as we'll see in a moment, automatically by default in his conscience, in his intuition, by his observation to believe in a creator. It takes work. It takes denial to become an atheist. He begins talking about this in verses 18 to 20 as we started last week. And remember we said last week, verse 18 stands alone and verse 18 will work in a greater conjunction with the following context. We're going to find out how verse 18 links itself with this first strategy for disbelief and it's simply this. The first strategy is suppress the truth. Just pack down, suppress the truth. There are some ways that, the, that the, uh, the atheist suppresses the truth, and an unbeliever, we can say, suppresses the truth. We're going to look at those in these verses. The first is in the first part of verse 18. Uh, letter A, he involves draw, it involves drawing God's wrath. Suppressing the truth involves drawing God's wrath. We looked at this last week. Just review. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Stop right there. We looked at the wrath of God. We're going to continue to look at the wrath of God in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, and in chapter 8. He keeps coming back to God's anger needing satisfaction and us needing a substitute to receive the wrath that we deserve. Paul begins to stack his argument that man is rightfully under God's wrath. Man is rightly the, the lightning rod of divine justice. Why? Because of sin. And he builds toward this statement, uh, really in chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and in the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Would you look over at chapter 2, verse 5 a minute? Let, let's just feel the, the conclusion to his argument here. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, that's the judgment, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. How can a person store up wrath? How can you increase wrath? 
There are rewards in heaven, and we understand that. Faithful in little, faithful in much. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about rewards and, and series of rewards in heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 talk about rewards in heaven. But just as there are rewards in heaven, there are degrees of absolute terror and punishment in, in hell. And he says here, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. The wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God will be revealed from heaven, as we saw last week, against all ungodliness, that's the vertical dimension of sinning against God, and unrighteousness, that's the moral dimension of sinning against those horizontally in, in this world. And it's unavoidable. We were born as sinners. Can we say it again? No one teaches a two-year-old how to sin. We are born broken. Kids don't need to be protected from the world in a sense that if the world gets in their mind, then they might become unsaved. They're born broken. They're born sinners. That's why the gospel is the remedy. We don't expose our, our kids to sin on purpose, but the problem is not so much out there. The problem is always where? In here. We looked at that in detail last week. Suppressing the truth involves drawing the wrath of God. But secondly, suppressing the truth involves using sinful means. It involves using sinful means. Look at the last part of the verse. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress, the Greek word means to stuff. It's like having that suitcase that you're trying to get everything into before you go on the trip, and you have to sit on it and stand on it, bring your kids to stack on it so you can get it closed. You're stuffing as much into it as you can. You want to put it in there and zip it up so that it's cared for. Well, in a negative sense, that's what's going on here. Stuffing the truth down. Ignoring the truth, arguing against the truth, justifying untruth. How do we do that? How do people stuff the truth down? Well, you can do it willfully by saying we're going to create arguments against God, against the Scripture. That's a willful way. But the natural inclination of the human heart is to suppress and stuff down the truth. It's right here in the verse, how? In unrighteousness. In order to sin... You must suppress the truth. That's for an unbeliever. That's even for a believer. Tozer said, In the moment of sin, every man is a practical atheist. In other words, you may say you believe in God, but you're acting like he doesn't exist. I mean, to sin, think about it. When we sin in thought, when we sin in, in mind, when we sin with our, with our flesh, we are for that moment suspending and suppressing the truth that God is judged and we're accountable for that sin so that we can enjoy the momentary pleasure of that fleeting sin, right? That's a suppression. You suppress the truth not so much philosophically. You suppress the truth so that you can enjoy what this text says, unrighteousness. That's going to come in fuller understanding in this next involvement. Suppressing the truth, thirdly, involves ignoring divine instincts. Ignoring divine instincts. Now, some people get really tripped up on what this next uh, passage, this next verse is about. 
Because you can, you can easily uh, find some sort of the gospel is in the trees kind of gospel or, or the good news of God is in the wind or, or looking at the Grand Canyon will make you saved. That's not what it means. How do they suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Because why would they do that? Why? Because that which is known about God, that's a passive verb, it's known to the person, is evident Where? Within them. For God is the one who made it evident to them. What is evident within them? The knowledge of God's existence. Any effort for the atheist to plead that he is unable to get to know God is dismissed by this verse. Any atheist who says, I've tried, I've tried, is absolutely waylaid. God says, no, 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 no. You may not deny my existence because I've made it known to you. Every man is born, every person possesses a God consciousness. It's not that everyone begins to believe, uh, it's not that everyone, anyone begins to believe in God. You you don't just like at six years old say, hmm, God, that's a good idea. I heard one person say that when you're alone in the dark and you have a fear, that's the, the little realization that you are not alone. And that someone else is present. Don't miss the simple facts in this verse. God has made his existence known to every human heart. But if that's the case, then why are there unbelievers? Good question. We discovered the answer at the end of the previous verse. Because people love to experience sin rather than worship God. They suppress the truth. They beat it down. They push it back so they can enjoy sin. Why would you do that? Because God is holy. He's the creator. That's intuitively understood, as we'll see in a moment, through the conscience. And if you can suppress that so you can enjoy sin, then atheism is a legitimate option, at least conscientiously. Men would rather submit to their own lusts and their own desires than the holy will of a living God. Let's ask the question, though. How has God made himself evident to men? One way to think of that is to to compare people with with animals. I love animals. I I have a dog. I love my dog. I also like to eat animals. They're very good. One of the things that most distinguishes us from the beast, though, is not only that we think in abstract realities but we think in moral categories. They don't think in moral categories. They don't think of right and wrong. God put us in a special position in his creation. He put inside us an internal monitor called conscience. Look down to chapter 2 for a moment again. Chapter 1 and 2 are so inextricably woven together, we have to build one on the other. When we get to Romans 2, we'll be coming back to Romans 1, by the way. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law of God, they don't have the the Torah, they don't have the scrolls, they don't have the Bible, do instinctively, that's an interesting word, instinctively, from the heart, intuitively, instinctively. They do the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves. What does that mean? In that they show the work of the law written on the scrolls. Now, what does it say? 
It's written on their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing them or else defending them. What is he saying? Well, he already said when you do instinctively the things of the law, when you do something nice, when you know that there's something better to do than worse to do, you're doing instinctively the law that's written on your heart, which is to be nicer than meaner. Everyone understands right and wrong, nice and meanness. Why? Because we're born with a conscience. Now, you may, as we'll see in chapter 2 and 3, you can sear your conscience where you no longer have the willingness or the ability to distinguish right and wrong. But the conscience bears witness to the fact that there is God. Go on verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Why is there a sense of right and wrong in the human heart? Why is an instinctive inclination in every heart to stop a bully from picking on an inferior? Why does almost every television drama make you want to watch it? Because there's a good guy and a bad guy. You want the good guy to win and the bad guy to get it? Even unbelievers have that sense, right? Why is that? Where does that come from? The answer is right here. We all have a conscience. I mean, I think the entire drama of television, the whole genre is built on this verse. Create a sense where you don't like the bad guy and create a a narrative where the good guy wins and people will watch it. There's a whole genre predominantly um, anchored in and perfected by William Shakespeare called a tragedy. What happens there? The bad guy wins. The bad situation wins. Drama, tragedy, comedy, all of that is built on the intuitive sense of conscience. The answer is not only here in Romans, but Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has made everything appropriate in his time. Listen to this. He has set eternity in the heart. You don't become an atheist. You stop becoming a theist. Very different. The main point Paul will make over and over is that no man will ever stand before God with a legitimate excuse for denying his right to judge. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, after he builds this argument, what is he going to say? You have no what? Excuse. There are no excuses. Which leads us, looking at the suppression of truth, fourthly, to the fact that it involves denying natural revelation. This is so important. It involves denying natural revelation. Theologians have two categories. Special revelation and natural revelation or general revelation. Special revelation is God's word. It's specific. It's special natural or or general revelation is the creation. That you look in the creation and you say, this didn't just happen. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world... Stop right there. Just stop right there. What is implied in the word creation? A creator. The world did not just happen. We did not just evolve out of some cesspool of organic soup like the the display at the Smithsonian says. We were in Washington, D.C. a few years ago with my my sons. 
They were very small at the time. And we went, we went to the, the Museum of Natural History. And if you've been there, you've seen they have this exhibit, which, which shows the beginning to where we are. They have this, it's literally called a cesspool of organic soup. Doesn't sound good. And there's a little amoeba. And then there's something crawling out of it. And then there's this reptilian thing. And then there's this mammal thing. And then there's this thing. Then there's animal, animal, animal. And then there's this monkey. And then there's this guy-looking thing. And it goes on and on and on. And at the end, is a guy standing in a white lab coat. And you're going, this is the worldview. This is what it is. This is how it happened. There is no creator. It just happened. Since the creation of the world... God's divine, excuse me, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. If you underline things in your Bible, that is a great little phrase to underline. Have been clearly seen. Where? How? Being understood. Not just seen, but understood. There's a progression there. Through what has been made. Back to the creator again. So that they are, as he'll say again in chapter 2, verse 1, without excuse. Now look at this verse backwards for a second. The issue here is that there's no excuse for unbelief. No one has an excuse for unbelief. The reason here in verse 20 is that nature, the world, the creation, remarkably demonstrate and announce that there is a creator. Paul has moved from special revelation in verses 16 and 17 to general or natural revelation in verse 20. Now, there are three traits of God listed here. Very interesting. They're they're listed very fast in staccato fashion. First, God's invisible attributes. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 1 Timothy 1.17, God is invisible, dwells in unapproachable light. Hebrews 11.27, faith allows you to see him who is unseen. How can you perceive that which is invisible? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus gives us a perfect illustration of this. He says, you believe in the wind, Nicodemus? You don't believe in the wind because you see it. You believe in the wind because you see its effects. Secondly, he says God's eternal power. It's a reference to God's power here, and it's connected to the works of creation in the context. God's power in creation is massive, and it is minute. Ever been to the Grand Canyon? Just wow, if you have. You just look at it, and you go, this is, this is a big hole. It's a very big hole. If you've ever flown over the Grand Canyon, it's a, it goes a long time. Massive in the creation. The Swiss Alps. Unbelievable majesty. The Himalayas. The Pacific Ocean. I remember flying one time from, from uh, Los Angeles to New Zealand, and for 14 hours you're over the Pacific Ocean. And yes, you do wonder... If this thing landed in the ocean, those flotation devices make a lot more sense. It's not only on the massive scale, it's also on the microscopic scale. I mean, when I was in school, we talked about the three parts of the atom. Now they're talking about the multiple parts of each part of the atom. It's just 
deeper and deeper. It's majestic. It's complication. I think of just we were talking about some, some ladies who've been blessed with pregnancies today. Just think of the unbelievable, unimaginable <laughs> wonder of a seed, microscopic seed, and a microscopic egg coming together and making you. Just babies forming. I just think of the blood vessels, the arteries, and the veins, how they form hollow? Really? Evolution? Really? I tend to think it takes far more faith to become an evolutionist than it does a creationist. He says, thirdly, divine nature, God's divine nature. This is the godness of God the Creator. <laughs> that is, that God is God and there is no other. This is understood by considering the works of His hands in nature. You can turn there, but just listen. Psalm 8. I love Psalm 8. Let me just read it to you. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth, who has displayed, who have dis displayed your splendor from the heavens, he says. From mouth, the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. I love this verse. When I consider the heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, what you have ordained. I think Aaron's written a song where he says, God just flung stars into space. Here's a galaxy. Here's a solar system. Incredible. Then he says, looking at all that, what is man that you would take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands, you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Listen, we can talk about disbelief all we want to, but as a believer, do you worship not the creation, but do you worship God because of his handiwork? Have you stopped to smell the roses? Have you seen what he's done? Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are declaring, telling the glory of God and their expanses, declaring the work of his hands. Day pours forth speech and night reveals knowledge. Come on. As a believer, have you ever found, gone somewhere where there's no light pollution and looked at the stars, tried to count them, and just said, have you, have you had wow moments in looking at God's creation. Listen, creation is not mute and creation is not dumb. The voice of nature and creation are broadcast on a loudspeaker between the ears of every man and to his heart. This is teleology, as the philosophers call it. No one finds a computer on a beach and says, wow, evolution. I mean, think about it. Given enough time, you would expect that a computer 
would come into existence. That's the argument. Or even the human eye. I went to my eye doctor recently. Um, do, do you know how they scare you to death, that little puff? I don't like that. I get anxiety, but I know this puff is going to come. I don't even think that does anything. I think there's people watching you in the next room. But he was explaining to me, you know, the, the, they took a picture of the back of my eye with these blood vessels, and they were explaining this and these spots, and there's a blind spot, and there's the optic nerve, and it's attaching and the, these parts. And I, I just think, you know, given enough time, the elements of the human body could come together and the eye could do that and transmit electromagnetic impulses to synaptic gaps which fire between neurotransmitters which create vision immaterially on gray matter in your brain which causes you to think and reflect on things that are outside of your body. Yeah, given enough time, creation is intended to make us say, who made this. Think about it. If you're at a potluck and you discover a dish that you like, you typically want to know what? Who made this? So you can get it again. If you walk into a beautiful home, you want to typically know who decorated this. And if you see the splendor of creation, you should ask, who made this? Please understand the knowledge of God in creation, which is natural revelation, general, general revelation, listen please, is enough to condemn a man, but it's not enough to save a man. We're all condemned because we don't follow that divine instinct given in our hearts by conscience and observation of the creation. You follow that and you acknowledge God. The next passage is going to tell us if you acknowledge God, you'll find Christ if you exchange the truth of God for the glory of the creation, you'll find yourself. But we have to go here just for a minute. Turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is such important territory. I just want to talk for a moment to junior hires, high schoolers, collegians, because you are going to be in a worldview, in an environment where the college campus, the, really the college classroom is the pulpit of secularism. And you're going to be told the creation is not due to a creator. The creation, the, the world of nature is due to an endless system of cause and effects that go back to a cesspool of organic soup. There's only three options for belief regarding the creator and creation. Only three options. Materialistic evolution. What is materialistic evolution? Here it is. Ready? Here's the mathematical equation for materialistic evolution. Nobody plus nothing equals everything. And they're telling us how stupid we are for believing in the Bible. Get this. Nobody plus nothing equals everything. That's the secularist evolutionary view. A second view is theistic evolution, which tries to combine both. Now, that God started the evolutionary process and enters into the world at certain points. Hugh Ross is a, is a, is a guy who's been purveying this, this theology for several years. That God uses evolution. Here's the deal. If you cannot believe Genesis 1 and 2, where do you start? Well, chapter 3. Chapter 3 is harder than 1 and 2. 
I'm a sinner because Adam sinned? Can I say again how I love being in a church that believes that God created this world in six literal 24-hour earth-rotating days and rested on the seventh? You know why? Because that's what the Bible says. If you can't if you skip the first two chapters in belief, where do you start believing? Theistic evolution tries to combine science and the Bible. The third is divine creation. God made the universe just like the Bible says. It's God who created life, which means it's God who judges life, which means it's the one we're accountable to in heaven is God. Just real quick, Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your creator when? In the days of your youth. People have said Ecclesiastes is the hardest book in the Bible to understand. It's interesting because it's actually addressed to students. I think it's simpler than you might uh, uh, take at first glance. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to believe. Remember your creator. Your creator. This is about God. He could have said, remember your God. He didn't say that. Remember your creator. The foundation worldview is that God created the universe. We're accountable to him. Before the sun, the light, the moon, the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain. This is talking about getting old. Now, if you, if you don't like the aging process, you just might want to tune out Solomon for the next few verses. He says, remember your creator when you're young, because the older you get, the crustier your conscience becomes, and it's harder to believe. There's nothing to look forward to in verse 2, he says. Verse 3, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, that's the shaking of the hands of an old person, which are our watchmen, they protect us. And mighty men stoop refers to the weakening of the legs. And the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. One of the most unfortunate facts of life is the problem of teeth. I love the dentists in our church. But I like going to the dentist about as much as that eye-puffing eye doctor. Isn't it interesting, by the way, we begin on baby food and life and we end Life on baby food. <laughs> and those who look through windows grow dim. This is obviously a reference to, to keen eyesight. You can easily follow the disintegration of your eyes from reading glasses. I can do this in my own life. To permanent glasses. To bifocals. To trifocals. Notice what it takes for you to read something. I, if, without my glasses, I, my, just, my arms just aren't long enough to see what it says. Verse 4, And the doors in the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and yet the one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters sing softly. This is the strangest of all things. The older you get, sound just doesn't work the way it used to. I mean, I remember my grandma who could hear us whispering an argument four rooms apart. And yet we were in the same room. Mamma! Mamma! And she never heard a thing. Verse 5, furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and terrors on the road, heightened sense of danger. Older folks tend to tell everybody, just be careful. They don't know what to be careful of. You just need to be careful. There's dangers out there. The almond tree blossoms. An almond tree blossoms, what color? White. Talking about graying of your hair. 
The grasshopper drags himself along. It just takes a little longer to get places than it used to. The caperberry is ineffective. A caperberry is a small olive. Your taste stops working. I remember watching my granddad put salt on his eggs. I would just go like this. My granddad would go like this. <laughs> just couldn't get it tasting salty enough. For a man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. This is our funeral. The silver uh, cord is broken. The golden bowl is crushed. A picture of the impotence of money to stop the aging process and the inevitability of death. No matter how rich you are, you will not be able to pay your way out of death. The pitcher by the well is shattered. The will of the cistern is crushed. Again, it's underlined that once death happens, there are no more chances. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. This is the assurance that we all will indeed live to face a judgment after we die. Then he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Steam off a cup of coffee. You better live for eternity. Unlike the atheist who says, this is all, make sure you get everything you can in this life. We say, no, this is just the beginning. Make sure this is on-ramp for eternity. Look at the end of the book. Conclusion, verse 13. When all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments because it applies to every man. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's Paul's point in Romans 1. God's wrath is coming. His judgment is sure. Make sure that you're ready for it. It really brings us to the first book of the Bible. In the beginning... God created, God created the heavens and the earth. If that is true, that changes everything. That includes you and me. I find it very interesting, oh, so interesting. We don't have time to study this passage now, but in, in 2 Peter 3, it's very interesting that Peter says, you will know you're close to the end when men deny God as creator. Can you say the theory of evolution? We are living in that day. That's generic. It's theoretical. How is it personally? If you're an unbeliever, you're under the wrath of God. Please run, don't walk, run to the cross. Come to our prayer room at the end of the service. Talk to someone about having your sin atoned for, cared for, taken away, covered, so that you can enjoy the wonder of God and the glory of heaven, not the wrath of God and the horrors of hell. Please, please don't leave without that being settled. But I think this passage also speaks to us as believers do we look at the wonder of our creation and say, who made this? I mean, we love, we've, we've, we've had beautiful sunsets this week. It's not enough to say, what a beautiful sunset. Just stop and say, God created mist molecules that reflect and reflect 
refract light to make these colors. He could have just had the sun go over the edge. The earth rotate away from it. When you see that rainbow, do you remember? God promised he's not going to flood this place again. When you see an insect, do you think, wow. If we had created things, we wouldn't have created stuff like God did, would we? I just think of that wonderful day. I want to talk to Adam about this in heaven. I want to talk to Adam about when all the animals came, which would have included dinosaurs, by the way, at that time. Just things like, okay, Adam, you see the ducks, and you, you see the, the, the beavers and the, and the raccoons, and then you see the duck-billed platypus. What was that like? And God just smiling, God the Father smiling and saying, this gives me glory. I think of the deepest part of the sea where there are fish and creatures that no one has ever and may never see in the history of the planet except God, and they bring him glory. This passage screams to us who believe to believe and to thank God for the wonder of nature and the creation. You have to be careful, and the next passage next week is going to say, you can't worship the creature and you can't worship the creation, but the creation should lead you to worship the true and living God. Would you bow with me for a moment? In just a minute, I'm going to dismiss us and prayer room to my right will be open. Uh, Bob and Kathy will be over there. We'd love to be able to talk to you about anything that is on your heart. If you don't know Christ, what a, great, what a great day you came with great people who can talk to you about your soul, about salvation. Don't leave without settling that account with God by having Christ's righteousness given to you because of his death in your stead and his resurrection for your life. And if you are a believer, don't make it home without seeing some wonder of God's natural and general revelation and saying, wow, what a God. I know who made this. Father, enlighten our minds as believers. Convict the minds of those who don't believe. Unmask their atheism. Unearth their intuition and instinct that you made it evident within them that you exist. And help them to find the definition of your image in the person of your son who became a man and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from you. Rip the scales from our eyes. Help us to see the wonders of your creation that point to the glory of you as creator. And let no man who doesn't believe leave this building today with any assurance that he has an excuse before you that you cannot be known. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. 
For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.